Hi, I'm Vishnu Srinivas and welcome to Hawkeye. I started this podcast to give professionals an open platform to share their candid views on topics impacting businesses and economies around the world. Make sure to rate, review and subscribe. Joining me today is Will Diamond. He is an assistant professor of finance at the Warden School of Business. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with you today. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. So do you want to get into an introduction about like your background and your role? Sure. So I'm, as you said, assistant professor of finance. I've been doing this for just over five years now. Um, yeah, I guess I got into this for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, as a college student, I sort of studied applied mathematical things broadly. I was also very interested in statistics. Um, maybe I could have ended up in computer science or something like that, too. Um, but seeing the financial crisis happen, which was relatively recent then, I finished college in 2011, uh, and seeing the sort of policy response to that made me understand that this was an area where you could spend a long time studying how the world works intellectually and then actually have something very important to say for big public policy questions in an emergency situation. And I don't think anyone is quite going to replicate Ben Bernanke's career, which was perfect in this regard of he yeah. was the Great Depression scholar and then mm. Great Depression round two sort of almost hit him in the face. Yeah. Uh, potentially, we actually would have had Great Depression round two if the policy response you know, didn't have his expertise involved. Hard to know, yeah. but plausible to me. Um, but broadly, watching that happen made me think, yeah, this is an important thing to do with your life and maybe someone else can do something at least somewhat similar. So interesting topics to study. I guess the second answer I can give also, which is a little bit less uh, original sounding, is the rest of my family is academics also. And in many ways, oh. this was actually kind of the path of least resistance as well. <laughs> That's always a safe way to go. Yeah. Um, so first off, I want to kind of take a kind of general view to you know, your process as an assistant professor. So yep. I guess, how do you decide what your next area of research is going to be? And what is the process like for conducting that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think everyone's answer here is a little bit different. I seem to work on the same questions over and over again, but methods wise from all sorts of different angles. Um, in one way, you could frame maybe my last five papers is all being about, I wrote a theoretical paper when I went on the job market when I finished my PhD, which had a bunch of testable implications. And I've written more data-oriented papers since then of various types, which tested things which came out of that model. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't quite so planned out, but to the extent to which I had sort of a broader conceptual framework in my head for here is how asset prices are related to what banks are up to. And that's related to how much firms and households borrow. I sort of had a theory in mind, uh, which sort of connected all these various pieces. And since then, I've written papers about the asset pricing side of this. I've written papers about the bank lending side of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess maybe this is just sort of a perfectionistic impulse in my personality. But whenever I want to measure one of these things precisely, it pushes me down a relatively different path in terms of what the sort of correct tools are for doing so. Right. Um, so I've done some structural estimation, which is where you 
assume a little bit of economic theory, but then use the data to estimate the parameters of that model. Mm -hmm. um, I've done some what they call reduced form empirical work, which is just sort of direct description of the data. That's often how you can do things in asset pricing because asset pricing data is so clean that it often answers questions right. relatively just as you look at it and you see. And then on the other extreme, I've done some sort of quantitative macro modeling too. So you're never truly going to pin down all the parameters in a macroeconomic model directly from data, but you sort of the do the best you can to say, here's a theory with many moving parts in it, and I'll at least try to make it consistent with what we observe in the world. But question-wise, though, I've always been really interested in this connection between central bank policy and how that impacts the financial system and how maybe that relates to the risks of new financial crises occurring. Yeah, definitely. And you talk about how you know, you often return to topics you studied before. So I guess that leads me to my next question where, you know, how did you first become interested in banking and, you know, the investing convictions that, that they use? Yeah, that was mostly just about watching the banking system almost die in 2008. <laughs> Think about why it didn't die. Ask myself, were the policy responses that occurred there sensible? Mm -hmm. And then just kind of building from there, both from reading what central bankers were up to in various countries and their speeches, also reading a lot of history too. Um, a lot of the most interesting things with financial crises were sort of in the industrial revolution era. Yeah. Uh, whenever there's new technology going on, can we lend against steam engines? Can we lend against colonies across an ocean? Sometimes it works out great, sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't. And you get a lot of busts as well as the booms. Um, I would say broadly speaking, Financial crises in various different, you know, recent and historical contexts have motivated the sort of questions that I get into. It's always sort of start with something concrete. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve did this thing called quantitative easing, where they bought up a bunch of assets from the financial system and then think abstractly, can I frame some kind of an economic model where this is either a good or a bad idea? And then once I've done that, can I convince myself with data whether or not this kind of model is actually an accurate description of reality? But it's always sort of starting with a kernel of a re recent events or historical example and kind of working backwards from there to something much more conceptual. Yeah, absolutely. And Kind of want to dive into you know your most recent paper, yep. um, where you really explored your know, convenience yields, interest yes. rates, and all those kinds of different uh, factors that are impacted by that. Yep. So first off, like broadly speaking, can you like kind of explain convenience yields in layman sure. terms and yes, the significance of it? That's right. So a convenience yield is sort of a catch-all term for all the benefits of owning a financial asset beyond the value of the cash flows that it pays. So why do you hold $20 bills in your wallet? Not because you're going to think, oh, I'm going to get rich with my $20 bill holding investment strategy, but because that's a useful thing for you to own for making payments. Mm -hmm. And you might also say, you know, cash is the most money-like asset, but bank deposits are sort of a form of money. They pay some interest, but they pay less interest than, say, treasury bonds do, less interest than, say, corporate bonds do. Mm -hmm. And that lower interest rate is reflecting that you might be willing to give up, say, you know, three quarters of a percent a year in interest in exchange for the benefits of using it as a sort of monetary transactions device. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea of a convenience yield is that is that rate of return you're willing to forego because an asset is useful for you know, transactions related purposes or 
you know, maybe your bank regulator prefers you to hold this asset over something else because it's more easy for them to understand how risky your balance sheet is. Just sort of a catch-all for all those things beyond just the profits you're going to attain by holding the asset. Um, and this is related to the banking system because banks create these money-like assets. If yeah. this convenience yield is large, that means there's going to be an incentive for the banking system to grow because that's a cheap source of financing themselves if they mm -hmm. get to capture that low rate of return on their borrowing side. Uh, and potentially that can be a situation where you might have an incentive to cause a crisis where the banking system grows. Right. Uh, but this is sort of one of the key measurement devices that would go into here is the benefit of creating something that looks like a bank deposit. And then you might want to think about how does this relate to the financial system more broadly. But this is something which you can observe in data in a pretty direct way. Right. And while I think you just touched on this, but I guess, can you break down more like the intuition behind the correlation between convenience yields and interest rates? Sure. And mostly yes. government bonds. And That's like, right. Function? Yeah, so the finding we have in this paper and also shows up in various forms in other people's works is that convenience yields are high when interest rate levels are high. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to a very basic thing in macro, the ISLM model. So this was the original quantitative macro model where you know John Maynard Keynes wrote all these words in the 1930s in an interesting but not entirely clear book. And the first pass at turning that into equations had this thing called the LM curve. And LM means liquidity slash money. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, well, bonds pay 5% right. and cash pays zero. <laughs> then the convenience yield of cash is that 5% interest you're going to forgo. Mm -hmm. And if it's the case that money-like assets are relatively substitutable for each other, that I could hold cash or I could hold bank deposits and those both help me to do my transactions or holding treasury bonds maybe allows me to borrow against it. As long as there's some substitutability between these different money-like assets, they should all have high convenience yields and low convenience yields in an internally consistent way with each other. And if the convenience yield of cash is the interest rate level, then other convenient assets should also have high convenience yields when cash right. does too. And that's exactly when interest rates are high. Yeah. And like when you look at these countries that you've studied, yeah. um, extensive in your paper, mm -hmm. do you find like any relevant discussion, distinctions rather between the convenience yields in say emerging market sovereigns as opposed to like developed markets? So we were only, I think, able to pin this down really clearly in developed markets because if you want to measure the convenience yield of government debt by comparing it to some other interest rate that's higher, mm -hmm. you have to take a strong stand that there's no credit risk involved in that distance, in that difference. So countries with a large history of sovereign default, they are going to have high interest rates on their government debt, yeah. but that's not necessarily going to be reflecting sort of the intertemporal exchange rate between risk-free money in the present and risk-free money in the future, the way it would in, say, the US, where even if the US is financially profligate, they borrow in their own currency, they can always hit the print button and they can always pay their bills. Now, there's inflation risk. Maybe a million dollars is worth less than it is, but a contract which promises you a million dollars from the US government, they're going to be able to pay that no matter what. 
but a foreign country, particularly when borrowing dollar denominated, it gets much more difficult to understand what exactly is a convenience yield versus other factors. And other papers in the literature have looked at these interest rate spreads that we are interpreting as not having anything to do with credit risk. You find much bigger spreads when you look at, say, Latin American countries or African countries and so on. But probably those spreads have something to do with uh, investors' belief about default probabilities as well. Yeah, I think that really makes a lot of sense. Um, talk more, I guess, about the relationship between you know safe asset demand and convenience yeah. yield. Because sure. Obviously, you discussed that a lot in your paper. Yes. And you also mentioned how the U.S. specifically does not like earn a greater convenience. Yield. Exactly. So the convenience yield you can think of as the price of owning a safe asset. So I could be earning you know, a certain rate of return in the stock market. I could be earning a lower rate of return in safer asset markets. Some of that actually is due to the differences in cash flows these assets pay. Stocks will boom in good times and bust in bad times. Right. But one of the important things we did in our paper is we were able to replicate a risk-free cash flow entirely inferred from the prices of risky assets. It gets a little technical, but there's a way you can do this using options prices where the right combination of options provides a risk-free payoff. And we compared that to the yield on government bonds. And that spread right there, we think of that's the price you're willing to pay. You give up, say, half a percentage point of interest to hold the government debt instead of something whose cash flows are identical. Mm -hmm. And then what is the relationship between that and the demand for safe assets is the standard relationship between prices and demand in general. If there's lots of demand to hold these safe assets, that'll have two effects. One, the price will go up. And two, you're going to shift along the supply curve too. So that means that the global banking system will understand, well, if I can create a lot of dollar-denominated safe assets, that's a great way to fund myself. The global banking system will adjust to meet that demand. And that will both mean a large financial system in the US, which is what we observe. I think we're a relatively finance-heavy country. And in addition to that, you'll see foreign banks even if they don't do their local business in, in dollars, will often borrow in dollars and lend in dollars as well to sort of contribute to creating the supply to meet the demand. And then the second point you raised about the US convenience yield not being all that high, this is something we just observe in the data. Australia's convenience yield is larger. Mm -hmm. Japan's convenience yield is lower. It is almost entirely explained by the level of interest rates in countries. Mm -hmm. And I think the way I would interpret this is... Uh, the quantity demanded for dollar-denominated safe assets is high. It's the reserve currency. Lots of people want to hold dollars, right. but lots of people also want to borrow in dollars too. So there's a high supply and a high demand yeah, exactly. from being the reserve currency. And the equilibrium price is actually kind of in the middle of compared to other countries. Yeah, I think just analyzing in terms of supply and demand um, yeah. really makes a lot of sense in yes. terms of unpacking it. Um, last question for you, which is kind of the more broad and general view is, you know, I guess, what are the monetary policy implications of kind of your study? Like in terms of central bank interventions we see all the time, yeah. do you think they can kind of modify the, their approach based on understanding some of these principles? Yeah, I think exactly what the modification would be will take some thinking, <laughs> but compared to some sort of off the shelf uh, monetary policy models that don't think about the supply and demand for safe assets, there's definitely some things that have to be added. Mm -hmm. And I think the main thing I would say is both in my work, but also if you go way back in history, you can find precedence to this too. Maybe not in the last 30 years, but definitely in the last 70 years. 
that the relationship between safe assets and monetary policy is all about the nominal interest rate, mm-hmm. whereas things which are about, say, intertemporal substitution across time, which is models which don't have financial sectors, that's how they tend to work. That's all about the real interest rate. So let me try to unpack this a little <laughs> bit. If I can buy a lot of stuff measured in consumption tomorrow by forgiving a certain by forgoing a certain amount of consumption today, mm-hmm. that's a good investment. That will determine how much I save versus consume. Yeah. That's the sort of benchmark idea of what monetary policy is about, making savings more or less attractive. That's about the real interest rate, as long as you think people care about consumption rather than just getting happy about the dollars, you know, listed in their, <laughs> you know, measure of net worth, which maybe matters a little, but it's probably much less important. Whereas what we definitely seem to find in the data is the scarcity of safe assets, this sort of liquidity shortage notion Mm -hmm. has much more to do with the nominal interest rate. And ideally, what you would want is a way to be able to push real interest rates around to sort of manipulate borrowing incentives and investment incentives without there actually ever being all that severe of a scarcity of safe assets in the first place. Um, So a low nominal interest rate looks like a good thing because... As long as you can print money, it's not a truly scarce resource. You would want to not have an equilibrium shortage in the system where people are worrying so much about managing their liquidity balances. But there's a trade-off with that, though, because at least in the short term, if the Fed wants to affect investment incentives, what they have control over is the nominal interest rate, not the real interest rate. But I think this provides sort of one more motivation for why you might want to have a system where... At business cycle frequencies, the Fed will push interest rates to sort of lean against the wind, mitigate booms, sort of, you know, mitigate busts. Mm -hmm. But the long run interest rate living at a relatively low nominal level would also be a target you would want to have as well. So this idea of 2% inflation, uh, we kind of made it up and never really had a good rationale for it. But that's actually sort of what you want to get out of this way of thinking, too, that If we had higher inflation and higher interest rates for certain things that would cancel out, but that also would mean that everybody's spending much more time worrying about, oh, how much cash do I have in my checking account? I want to be able to pay my bills, but it's really bad to get that 0% interest. (laughs) Um, And having that be less of a hassle, uh, I think is sort of broadly good for everyone. And with a responsible use government printing press, that's attainable just by keeping interest rates low at a nominal level. Right. I think that's a great way to put a bow on it and analyze it in a very objective way. Uh, Thanks so much, Professor Diamond, for uh, these really helpful and insightful uh, comments. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me out. Great to talk about this stuff. And this is what I love thinking about all day. So it's always fun to try to get the message out to the world. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that. For more content, check out the rest of the videos on my channel. And be sure to look out every Thursday for a new episode.